The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Agile Uprising Podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Andy Clef. Joining me today is Ted Rao. He's the operational leader of Sociocracy for All. He's also co-author of a book called Many Voices, One Song, which was published 2018, subtitled The Sociocracy Handbook. And congratulations, you just released in April of this year, Who Decides, Who Decides. Looking forward to reading that one. Welcome, Ted. First time. Thank you for having me, Andy. We connected... A couple of weeks back, you responded to our podcast about holacracy with Brian Robertson and said, hey, you're comparing holacracy, sociocracy. I'd love to talk to you. There's a bit of a hornet's nest, if I recall correctly. (laughs) We, We dodged that. One of the things we debated was whether we, you know, we have the both of you on the show, but that that seemed a little bit dicey. Tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got where you are, where you reside, what are your superpowers, all the things we won't read on LinkedIn. All right. Oh, yeah. All the, all the things that are not publicly written. So, <laughs> okay. So let's see. I am from Germany. People typically ask me what my accent is. So I always say that first. Um, I um, grew up there and I uh, went to school there. And my first career was in linguistics. So I was really like a diehard, I still am honestly, diehard um, syntax, semantics, and pragmatics interfaces. And that's also where I learned kind of how to think, right? Um, and I was um, basically on that track of academia and, and doing that. Um, I did my PhD and then I came to the US for my postdoc um, here at UMass in Amherst. And I had always told myself, I'm going to do this whole academia thing as long as it's fun. And that's about when it stopped being fun because of the level of mobility and the level of competition and so on that I was not willing to do. I had just moved to the States to like two years prior with, um, with little kids. And it was just unthinkable to move yet again, especially somewhere in the world for yet yeah. another year and so on. So that life was clearly not for us at that point. And then I decided, okay, whatever, I'll just regroup from here. And then we also decided to stay in the US and my um, partner back then um, um, got a green card. So we stayed here. And that basically kicked me out of the, of the workforce because of several things um, really. So that was quite interesting. I really had to completely start from scratch again. When was this timing wise? That was, must have been in 2014, I think. Okay. So for a bunch of years, I was actually home with kids. That's, that's how out I was because I didn't have a work permit at first. So that was, so really, it's interesting looking back actually now, 
now, years, many years later, I see it as a as a continuation of what I do now with the whole sociocracy governance stuff. But first, it seemed like okay, that's that's my previous life, and now over time, I'm integrating more and more all that old identity and what I'm doing now because really, it is so similar. It's almost a little spooky. So that's that's that. So let's see. I what I also did was we moved into an intentional community back then, into a co-housing community here in Mr. Mass with 70 neighbors. So you can see it was a little bit the fork on in the road, you know, like on the road, um, like you know, staying on track and doing what I'm supposed to was one one option. The other one was completely starting again and uh, moving into an intentional community and and doing something that's a little bit off the beaten path. So that's what we did. And this community was running sociocratically. So that's how I got exposed to it at first. Um, and then very quickly pulled into it because I was absolutely fascinated by how things were running and how good it felt. So that really got my attention of, wow, this is fun. I can see myself working in groups and it being fun and productive. And it was that combination that really drew me in because that I had never seen before anywhere, really. So I'm curious, what brought you to the community, this intentional community? Was it, was it an awareness of sociocracy and an interest or something else that brought you there? And then it was, wow, this is, this is a great thing. We had always wanted to live in co-housing. I think for me, it is part of um, wanting more integration in life. And that, again, all of those things have to do with what, what sociocracy does and kind of the mindset that it's embedded in. I wanted more integration between between me and the community directly around me between what we do and how we do things together and so on so and that's what we do have now right i have so many connections with my neighbors now so it's very different from living at the end of a driveway it's it's really it's intentional right but that's also something that drew me in it's intentional like choosing to spend time and make decisions together and share resources and so on so that's a whole whole other thing what's the scale of the community number of heartbeats uh, we have around 70 people and a bunch of people off of campus that are members. Okay. Uh, we share one big community building together. Everybody has their own house. We're all kind of, yeah, but already the land outside of the house directly um, is community owned. So, so there's a lot of negotiating with each other, what somebody can do and so on. So you're really into each other's lives. And that's what I want. And so that's a couple years before you started SOFA. Sophia, yes. for all, right? Yes, because then, then, so as I said, I was pulled into the sociocracy thing and then thinking, gee, this is like, this is really a key thing. Many more people should know about this. I, so I was one of the people that I see now and people who I train that say, wait, why didn't anybody tell me about this before? Like, hold on. <laughs> I would have needed this 20 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago. Why did it take me so long? Like, why is this not all over? So, and then I realized, oh, in order for it to be all over, maybe somebody should push a little. And I had the cons, I, I had the self-image that I would be good at that. Yeah. And that's what we did. So then um, there was kind of the question of, do we integrate? Uh, that was, so that was um, my, my partner now, Jerry, Coach Gonzalez. We co-founded together. And the question was, do we integrate in something that's already existing? But really nothing was kind of hitting the angle that we wanted to do. Because for us, this was social change work. Like this is really changing how we are together as human beings. It's not just about governance and about, you know, getting like squeezing another 15% productivity out of people. That's not what I'm interested in. And I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in like, I mean, that too, you know, but not if that's the only goal, right? The ultimate yeah. 
thing that I'm playing for as a society that is based on consent and integration and authenticity and integrity. That's that's what I'm playing for. So we wanted sociocracy, and that's why we called it sociocracy for all. We wanted it in as many hands and minds as possible. So that's that's what we're optimizing SOFA for. So we um, we're considering ourselves not a consulting group or just a training organization. We're that too. But really, we see ourselves as like an ecosystem that is a whole movement support organization. So the movement is happening, right, in all different places, not only connected to SOFA, but also other players. And that's all great. But what we do is we try to basically see like, okay, what is the, what, what the, what would support the movement right now? Like, for example, yeah. getting all the voices together and running a conference so that people can hear each other and so on. Like, we try to fill those gaps so the, the, the neural network connects. That's yeah. what we're trying to do. So you just had the fourth annual global event where you brought the voices together. What was that like? Where was it? Was it in person? What did you do last year in 2020? Yeah, we've we've been we've been online basically the entire time. So this was a pre-COVID thing already for us. And there's several reasons to that. One is just the level of inclusivity, I guess, because we work with people from all over the world. So traveling always makes it hard for people, right? So it has to do with env- environmental impact. It has to do with just family compatibility, compatibility, also for myself, but also for others, right? Yeah. Plus, it's so easy. So why not just do things online? So we've been doing that for quite a while already. So then our online conference 2020 was easy because all of a sudden, you know, people were struggling to put things online. We we're like, oh, we're doing this for the third time. No problem. Right? Hey, we've got this nailed. Right. Yeah. And then so now this fourth time, um, we noticed that people got a little Zoom tired over this year, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but still, we've been seeing our consistent growth. So it was still fun. And um, yeah, what's really fun about this conference is that we try to hear speakers who are not kind of the big shots, Yeah. but we want to show that sociocracy, like you don't have to be a special organization to do this because all we want, right, is we want this to be common, like we want common sense to be commonly done basically, right? <laughs> right. So just looking at, you know, Toyota kind of as, or, you know, and, and the like, like that's great. Yeah, now like, like what do special companies do? But we want to do kind of the opposite of looking at the ninety nine percent. You know, like of like, okay, so what are what are people doing that they can pull off, and how is it working for them? And it has the positive side effect that those people are also able to share with a lot of more vulnerability because they don't have to, you know, present themselves as special. They just tell things as things are. And then people can connect with that and really compare notes. And that's what I'm excited about, just in the level of acceptance and the level of just normalizing these ways of, of, of organizing. So it was all online. Were the sessions recorded and are they publicly available? Some of them are completely open access. Some of them are for people who uh, registered for the conference. Yeah, of, co- so, yes. of course. Cool. All right. I'm going to tap into your linguistic background. <laughs> Let us unpack the word sociocracy for people who have never heard of it before. How do you define it? Right. So the word is actually um, quite old. It was uh, around already like as, a, as an idea when the word sociolo- sociology was coined. So it it's, has obviously the same roots. So socios, the people who associate together, and crisi, like in democracy, 
is governance. So the idea is that it's governance by those who associate together. And I have a, a shortcut of explaining it that I know is wrong, but it's a good kind of way to get your mindset in. Right on us. Those who work together decide together. That's really the idea of instead of people deciding somewhere in a boardroom and then telling you what to carry out, it's now how about the people who do it decide how it's being done, right? So it's a very simple logic that it follows. One has to put a few footnotes um, on it to really explain how it works, but that's the basic idea. It resonates with many of the agile frameworks. I don't know if you're familiar with that approach, but it is in principle very similar, right? Yes. The, the people that do the work closest to the work should work together and decide how it gets done. And as a result, it creates a very responsive system adaptive system and resilient system. Does sociocracy scale? Is it size limited to 70 people or Dunbar's number 150? Could you, you mentioned Toyota, are they a sociocratic? No, they're not. I'm just mentioning them because they're always looked up to as, as the, the guiding light, you know, and, and many more, of course sort of in the self-organizing world, um, kind of morning star and so on. Yeah. But um, one thing that sociocracy does that I guess is something that it adds also, for example, to agile is something that is that looks innocent, but really it's, it's pretty awesome as a concept. Um, and it's the concept of domains. So really as in, you know, what's in somebody's domain and the way I look at it. So and then I'll go to the, to the scale question on size. Everything that could be decided in an organization, every single thing is basically that's the whole big domain, right? Okay. But, and now we drop this in the middle, kind of in a concentric circles, nested circles kind of system. We drop it in the middle, but it doesn't stay there because we want to decentralize things. So now the general circle in the middle takes a chunk out of that and says, hey, you guys, can you take care of this? And we empower you, do whatever you want. You're on it. You do it, but you also have the authority to do it. So those two things come together, right? Those who work together decide together. That's the point. So now this circle, let's say that, let's say, for example, anything that has to do with production, they take care of. But now they could say, okay, production overall, that's kind of too big of a domain. That's too much for us. So how about we chunk out some of the pieces? We do the general oversight, but now some of the pieces we pass on. And now we've created a sub-circle that has full authority over that particular domain that we give them and so on and so on. And then ultimately we have a situation where most of the work is done on the outskirts of the, of the organization. So extremely decentralized. And it's a system that is very flexible because we can negotiate locally. So for example, between a circle and its parent circle, what domain lives where? Like, right. do, you, do you take care of it all off, right? That, so that's very clear, but it's decided in this very, like in those direct relationships. So that for every domain, we always know where it lives. And that way, everybody's empowered to just go do, but we're not stuck in the system. We can just go, like we can change it. And that, that really unleashes that power of decentralization because it's not only kind of the, the project-related work and not only the, and not only the management, but it's even self-governance because even your governance system is a domain that some circle will have power over and they could, in theory, change it, right? Or they might actually change it. So it's, it's everything. Many questions are coming to mind. So it's dynamic. Areas that a circle manages can ebb and flow. People can move. They can live in circles. Given human nature, how do you deal with things like fiefdoms and politics 
and turf wars that so many existing organizational structures battle with. Take it back to your community, your intentional community of 70. Are, are there cliques? Are there fiefdoms? Are there you know, things going on that seem dysfunctional? Or, or, or how do you address that? It's not a well-formed question. Sorry, Ted. No, I understand. I understand. I guess, um, where do I enter this question? There's so many things about it. I guess one thing is, so I always struggle kind of with either or questions, right? And that's kind of a yes or no question. And of course, it's more complex than that. So um, you would have circles that then have something in their domain. It might be that for many years, for example, I'm, I just got selected leader in the community for one circle. And the group has basically stayed intact for many years now. I think we had an addition over time at some point, but um, we're sort of it. But now if you look at the world from our perspective, this, this um, circle is called community life. Um, is it kind of a click? Well, you know, there's bad things and good things about clicks. You know, the bad thing is that nobody else can have a say, right? And the good thing is that we're really well-oiled machine and we really understand and trust <laughs> each other. Right. So that, especially in COVID and the stress, that is worth a lot. Right. That was yes. worth a lot that we're like, OK, but, you know, we've known each other for many years. And even if somebody gets pissed off, we always know, OK, like ultimately we will figure it out. The negative side effect of people can't get in, that's something that's really interesting. And that's where we have to look at the the. Um, the relationship between decision-making and feedback. And that's one of the key things in sociocracy that one also kind of gets, needs to get clear conceptually. So while community life is the ultimate decision-maker on some of the things, for example, pet policies, you wouldn't imagine how, what big of a deal that is in communities, or parking, same thing, <laughs> big deal. Um, so all, the, all those things are held in community life, so we make the policies on that. That doesn't mean, however, that while we're the ultimate decision makers, we're not the only decision makers in that we're the only people calling the shots on that, but we get a lot of impact in input from people. Because without feedback, right, how good will your policies and your decisions be? So getting feedback is part of the job, basically. And the other thing is that we also need to communicate out why we decided what we decided. And if you want to make a sustainable decision that finds a lot of acceptance, therefore people will stick to it and be accountable. In order to make that happen, you need to get a lot of feedback. So it's kind of in everybody's interest to do that if you look, if you look at it that way. So that takes away from that clickiness. And I would say it's kind of a good balance between having an established team, trusted, mm -hmm. but also influx of new information. Tell me more about that decision-making process. I can imagine as a community, you know, if, if you need to get consensus, you never get anything done, right? So in sociocracy, what is the decision-making process like? So ultimately, first thing is always wondering, is this in our domain to make a decision? Because if not, that's kind of the very first thing. If not, that's a problem because then you might tie yourself into all kinds of knots, right? So is this in our domain? Then it's fairly easy. Depending on the scale of the decision, you might first explore what the different needs at play are and so on. Like, what's the thing? Like, what do we need to know to even make a decision here? A little bit of exploration there. Obviously, if it's a very simple problem, you don't have to go there. Um, and then there is actually, so then you have the options of um, either somebody goes and makes a proposal and you just approve that, or you might even write a proposal together, which I find a better option. 
because that way you have the voices there in the room. And if you streamline that, you can get to a very good decision pretty quickly, actually, where you have everybody's buy-in already because you've heard their because you've heard their input. You can even go to outside of the circle and get some input there. So there's a lot mm. of flexibility in what how how deep you want to go and how wide you want to go. But let's just follow along that trail once you've yeah. explored and then you've you have a proposal wherever it came from, then you go to consent. So then everybody who is a decision maker on that circle has consent rights and can either consent or object. If they consent, that means they say, yeah, that's probably going to work and it's in alignment with what we're trying to do together. If they consent, they are saying, hold on, there's a problem here that's going to basically, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot with this. And then they need to explain why. And of course, everybody will be very excited to hear it because who wants to shoot themselves on the foot? So that, that's, that's why objections in sociocracy or in consent are something positive. And then we would try to see what the, whether we can work with whatever brought, was brought there. You mentioned feedback. How does that operate? Or is that a circle level feedback? Is it an individual contributor feedback mechanism? Yeah, we try to we try to weave feedback in as a design principle into everything that we do. So for example, you have a meeting, you do a meeting evaluation, always. You have somebody in a role, you do a role like a performance review. You have a, whatever, a project that you do, you have a, you know, something like you would call a retrospective, right? Like any kind of review there would be. From time to time, you might even review your aim and say, like, is this overall what we're trying to do? Does this still make sense the way we were planning it? And maybe from time to time, you might even go to the highest level. You know, every 10 years, you might ask yourself, is this organization still useful? You know, is this still right. like, you know, this is not something you want to do every day, but everything is basically on a cycle that is as small as a one hour cycle or as big as a 10 year cycle. But everything follows the same pattern of, you plan something, you carry it out, you evaluate, and you try to build that in. One example of that discipline, for example, is that every decision we make, we put on a term. Like we make a parking policy, there's going to be a term in two years, for example, or we set that term, right? So again, it can be something that is three weeks, it can be something that is five years, but we put a term on it and that will then trigger a review so that we can see whether we're still on track. And all these practices are fractal from the, yes, the smallest unit out to the largest unit. And that, by the way, kicks up, that kicks up our, that in order to be accountable to your own feedback system, you have to work on accountability quite a bit. And that's why I like kind of templates and patterns and blueprints of like, how about you just have your meeting always the same way. It always starts in this way, this comes next, and then that, and then a meeting evaluation at the end. And we have like checklists and things like that, just, just, going through it like in a consistent way so that everything has its place. And then people can also relax, which increases the ability to hear each other and so on. Like it becomes, the way I look at it is all those different tools, as many as we use, um, you know, like because not everybody uses everything, but the more we use, the more likely we are putting ourselves onto an upward spiral around things instead of a downward spiral where then things deteriorate and fall apart and people lose trust and then tone gets harsher and so on. It just gets worse and worse. Yeah. Tell us a little more about the accountability feedback loop for, for a role or a circle. So again, um, performance reviews. Performance reviews are interesting, I find, in, um, in this consent framework because the way we set them up, for example, just I'm going to explain how role review works in, or performance review works in, in a sociocratic organization. You would um, 
have the point like so you have a focus person right so the focus person we first we review their roles so that we even know what we're measuring them against mm -hmm. and then we hear from them what went well and then we do a whole round of reactions where each person that is in that circle and often that's a circle that's just like organized like a 360 kind of it might not be an existing circle it might be a circle that we convene just for that purpose if somebody's in several circles anyway so we hear from that kind of um, performance review circle we hear a whole reaction round and then it ends on the focus person again yeah. they have to that's sometimes the most excruciating part because in that round they have to reflect back all the positive things that got said about them that's typically the least favorite part of that, <laughs> of that process for them that like, they squirm you know and if i facilitate it it's like no i want you to reflect reflect back what you heard like say it in your words and like okay i think you like that i do this and that and i think you appreciate it <laughs> anyway it's kind of funny um and then the next round is okay what could be improved and i guess again we put the focus person first so that they can own up on a few things yeah and then that just empowers them right if they get to say it first and then reaction round and it ends on the focus person again and then it, we go into proposal shaping process where we shape an improvement plan together that then needs uh, consent from everybody and then then that's you know then you trigger the next kind of performance review um based on that fascinating so i'm taking it there's no annual performance review hell well if you want <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah. where there's a manager that doesn't want to do it and then recipient doesn't want to do it how frequently would you do you know an individual what's the cadence of that individual role review a circle review yeah i mean that always you know it's let's see what am i going to say about this so my performance reviews as operational leader we try to schedule them once a year and that makes a lot of sense i think we could even do it more often but there's always so many things to do and that pattern i guess you know like the, the systems in place to hold you accountable but are, are people overriding it sometimes because yeah. they're like eh you know let's just whatever rubber stamp this one more time before we have to think about it again that happens too but i guess that's where it becomes important that you are actually living the principles and make an effort to, without being dogmatic and just going through the motions, um, really like hold yourself accountable to the systems that you set for yourself, right? As operational leader, do you get more frequent real-time feedback as part of that role? Because I, I reflect back on years in corporate America and that once a year review was just ridiculous uh, because I could have improved 11 months ago if somebody just told me that one thing. And so I'm, I'm curious what happens in, in between the annual role feedback cycle in the sociocratic org? I think the biggest, um, the biggest leverage point, I think, are meeting evaluations because that's kind of a... The way I think about it is meeting evaluations are a great way of bringing something up before it turns, like before it grows, you know, like catch yeah. it super early and say like, hey, you know, like this thing that we were working on between last uh, last meeting and this meeting, um, you know, like you could have really, I don't know, send out a reminder or like, you know, do this or that. Um, so the, the goal is to be as close as possible to real time. Then again, and that's so, sort of similar to what I said earlier just now yeah it's just a stage it's a stage you still have to get up you know you still have to get up and speak just because you have the voice and the system set up and so on doesn't necessarily pe mean people do it and i we noticed that feedback 
is typically the hardest for people, right? That's what they like, because that's, yeah, I remember once in an organization that I'm a part of, I said, hey, I really want us to embrace more being a feedback rich organization. And somebody said, what do you mean? You want people to talk more behind other people's backs? <laughs> like, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> but that's where people go, right? Um, another thing, by the way, it's also very sweet is how roles are chosen because people, people like, how do we select people into a role and we follow the um, selection process that's very feedback rich. Uh, so you get to hear why people nominate you for roles and they might actually say nice things about you, which is, again, sometimes excruciating for people, but it's also very informative. Like I was selected, what I just referenced, um, when I was selected leader of community life, had you asked me before that meeting, I would have probably, it didn't even occur to me that I'd walk out of the meeting being leader. I had not, I don't know. I, I guess it really ends with, I, I did, it didn't occur to me to even think about that. But then I heard people speak about it and nominate me for all those reasons. And I thought, actually it does make sense given where the circle is right now and given what I'm bringing, I can see that. So I ended up consenting to that. Although had you asked me whether I'm willing or whether I'm the person, I would have probably shrugged and said, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it. So there's interesting feedback there in all kinds of different ways. The selection process, is it a, a nomination or is it a voluntary or is it a combo of both? Well, you can nominate yourself. So what we do is you do, typically everybody thinks for a moment who they want to nominate. Sometimes we do several roles at once, then you think a little longer. And then we do a first round where people say their original thought, like what was, you know, to avoid groupthink. So yeah. what was the original idea? Who do you nominate to be facilitator and leader and delegate and all those roles? And uh, people, then we have kind of little, tweaks and how we get people to actually say, even if they're last person to speak in that round, like right, tell us what anchoring. your original idea was. Exactly. Yeah, write like, it down, show us the note exactly that you wrote that. down. Or sometimes like on Zoom, we use the private chat, like private chat to the facilitator. You know, it has a little bit of a secretive kind of touch. So I always explain like, no, we do this to hold you accountable to your own idea, you know? So the yeah. idea is that this is empowering anyway. So, but then the second round is the change round where you can change your nomination. So now having heard what other people said, you might actually say, oh, that's true. You know, like, let's say, let's me, I don't actually remember whether it went that way, but let's say in the nomination round, people selected me as leader and I selected somebody else because why me? And then in the change round, I might say, yeah, actually I'm nominating myself because what you said made a lot of sense. You don't have to do that. And we're also not doing rounds and rounds till everybody agrees on the same person. That's not at all, not at no all the worse. intention. We just yeah. need, we just need enough to base a proposal on and then just see what their objectives. Back to feedback, were you, was the, the group struggling more with giving or receiving? I thought about this quite a bit. And I think that, um, I guess I was wondering what the holdup is for them. You know, it's interesting in sociocracy for all where people like hear this, you know, all day, every day. It's not at all a problem, I would say. I mean, not at all is probably an overstatement, but not a problem, like nothing yeah. that jumps at me. But um, here in my community that does come up. Um, and I think that people don't like receiving feedback, but almost like as a proxy thing, they also don't like giving feedback because they have this like secondhand cringiness about it. It's one of the hardest things to break through, but one of the most powerful unlocking yeah. devices of improvement. 
All right, I saved one of the last things, the hardest things I expect that may be a surprising compensation. Mm. How mm. does that work when, when money's involved? <laughs> so there's several ways of setting it up. You can centralize or you can decentralize. Um, for example, you could put the domain of what salary, like the domain of salaries, determining salaries, you could put that into a circle, then they decide that's, in, that's the end of it. You could also decentralize a little bit more and let's say put the responsibility into a circle and have them decide. That's interesting then, of course, right? Because then you have kind of more, more local decisions. Um, and for example, in Sociocracy for All, we have people from all over the world, right? So mm -hmm. having one set salary for somebody, I don't know, um, in Mexico versus somebody in Massachusetts, that doesn't seem quite, you know, that doesn't compare as well. Right. So um, what we actually, like one, just one little way of doing it, not the way of doing it, but how we do it is we have kind of a guideline of considerations you have to check off when you make that decision but it is really the circle that makes the decision so a circle hires somebody into a paid role they will determine what the pay rate is given the, and they are given a template and and those discussion points um typically i guess most commonly circles stick with a default but they might deviate from it and they're allowed to do that yeah. in general there's one really interesting thing which so I'm thinking whether that affects the audience here, but um, when you have the difference between people who are on staff and people who are in paid roles, like an independent contractor, because that really adds a really other dimension to it that one really needs to think through well. Like, for example, I'm on staff. So if yeah. I, let's say, let's say a new sub-circle forms and I add another two hours in there, I have to negotiate with myself when I maxed out. There's no, there's nobody that's doing that for me. That's just on me because I, nobody's overseeing all of my roles because they're on a different circles. So that puts a lot of responsibility on me, but, and it also means that I have to navigate that if that I have, yeah, and I don't earn more money if I add another circle to my workflow. So yet, if I have somebody in a paid role that is just paid for that particular role, then you kind of have to negotiate each time you add more hours or they add another thing, or now they go to this other circle to report, is that paid or not? It gets, yeah, that it gets, gets a little tricky. Yeah. So it's a, a kind of mix of two systems in some organizations, which is yeah. not so easy. One has to kind of decide, I guess. So what's really good about sociocracy? What's really hard about sociocracy? You've been at it for seven, eight years, both practicing training, experiencing, living. What, what, let's start with the good stuff. You know, I think the answer is actually the same for both because I think what's really good about it is that it questions people in how they relate to themselves and to others because you can't overpower anymore. You can't overpower anybody, right? Because ultimately they need to consent. So you're going to walk into the conversation with a whole different mindset because, you know, ultimately, everybody has to be at least okay with what's being decided. So doing your typical power moves just completely falls flat. It's not an option. It's going to make things harder because ultimately that creates all those tensions that then you have to, you know, then you have to undo and heal and, and so on. So it's just, it just doesn't apply anymore. But that means now you have to um, be very self-responsible and also really, um, yeah, take in other people's voices as equals. That's great because that's the world that I want, right? 
but that's also the hardest. And I, um, and that's the the hard thing, um, I guess, kind of the neck, the shadow side of that. Yeah. Is that it is demanding in how much culture change we're asking from people. For example, around money, you know, <laughs> like if you ask people to consent to their own salary, that, like that's throwing them into loops of shame and all kinds of stuff that is coming up that is really, really hard for people. And the same things about all, all kinds of decisions, like somebody I remember in a training basically was reflecting back what I was saying and said, oh, Ted, so you mean consent? That means no more excuses. And I said, yeah, that's unfortunately exactly what it is. You either consent and then you're co-responsible or you object. But then please tell us what it is so we can improve it together. The whole whininess and do it without me and I, you guys go ahead. All of that kind of thing, all those um, patterns of behavior that can easily lead to toxic kind of situations, yeah. they're just not an option. So all of a sudden, congratulations, you're now responsible. And that's kind of a be careful what you ask for kind of moment because not everybody is comfortable with that. Part of the beauty, though, that you described is there's a time box to it. If it turns out that it wasn't the best for the aims of that circle, it's not for life. It's not written in stone and you don't need 17 levels of corporate approval to make a change. How, how hard is it to move responsibility from one circle to another? What if somebody doesn't want to give it up? What if, what if it's, it, it turns into a status thing? You know, I've never seen that. I, I know people oh, are so worried it just about doesn't that. I've happen. never seen it. I, I just have never, typically what I see, in, and I'm part of three organizations now that run sociocratically, what I've consistently seen is people just going like, oh, you're taking care of it. Yes, you want to take this. <laughs> you want more too? You deal with the pet policy. Exactly. <laughs> you oh, want yes, llamas exactly. and chickens? You deal with it. You have it all. It. You have it all. Yes, like for example, for example, um, community life in my community was just dealing with interpersonal things, but there's a separate circle for common house, everything that has to do with the shared community building. During COVID, of course, the common house became like a really hot uh, topic, right? Of like, is it open? Is it closed? And what are the rules here and so on? And common house circle was totally not having it. They were like, okay. Then they brought it to the general circle. Actually, maybe they approached us directly and said, take it. Can you take it? And then we kind of very reluctantly took it and we were very happy when we could pass it on again. So I don't see that as a power move. We were just like, oh, somebody has to do it fine because we're a good team. As I said, we're really well, like, well, um, you know, really doing well with each other, but hey, it put a humongous strain on us also in relationships and everything. That was no fun at all. So quite the opposite is what I see. Hold on, there was another aspect of this that I find interesting. I guess also just monitoring because we put work and power and authority, I guess, together, right? Typically people want a lot in the beginning. They want to have a say on everything. Like, you know, run this by me, run this by me. I want to be on this circle. I want to have input on that. I have great ideas on this and that. But since the work is also being done there, there is just a natural limit to how many things you can pay attention. So that kind of, that comes out in the wash pretty quickly. It typically takes half a year and then those things come down and everybody's just very happily playing in their own little sandbox. Speaking of limits, we're coming up to the end of our time box. I want to give you a chance to shout out some of the training opportunities that you have, things that are coming up in the fall. So there is some, we offer really training from the very beginning um, up to um, training consultants and training of trainers, um, depending on where people situate them or would identify themselves. 
um, you know, beginner trainings, facilitation trainings, that's all great. One training that I want to highlight because I love it so much, and it was actually the first thing we ever offered in Sociocracy for all. Uh, we call it Sociocracy Leadership Training, so S-O-L-T. And what we do there is we put people into circles. So basically, we started a pop-up organization with typically around 18 people. Mm -hmm. And somebody who's a trainer is always present, but basically we drop people into circles, give them a little project and then say, now, now go do it. And that is a whole level of, like that immersion kind of approach is a whole different level of learning it because you actually, you're not kind of thinking about it theoretically, but you actually do it. So that's a great thing to check out. Yeah. And of course the books, especially for people who just are starting out in an organization or whose team is still smaller than let's say 10 people. Um, who decides who decides is a good resource to to think about how one can grow that organization and decentralize and stay based on consent um, more intentionally. Thank you, Ted. I'll make sure to have links in the show notes to both the books. And so if you're just diving in, take Who Decides Who Decides, published April this year. Earlier, we talked about your first book. Many Voices, One Song. This has been fascinating. We would love to have you back and we can talk more about how does this work in an organization as a transformation you know, from mm. current state to future state. Mm -hmm. Cle clearly, nobody says, tomorrow we're going to be sociocratic instead of bureaucratic and uh, as well, but some ways of starting or experiments because many of our listeners are in you know, large organizations that were formed before any of us were born. And, and there's old ways of thinking, yet we're trying to fix that. And I think there's a wonderful resonance with some of these patterns of thinking and practice with agile ways of working. And I look forward yep. to diving in. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ted Rao, and to our listening audience. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating or a review on your podcasting program. Of course, if it's your first time, subscribe, get the next one. We also have a very vibrant Discord server. There's a link in our show, show notes. Uh, a couple hundred people from all across the globe participate on a regular basis, talking about all sorts of things, from food to agile to cars to who knows what, and we're gonna add a sociocracy channel soon. Finally, support from listeners just like you help us cover our podcasting hosting costs. Look for Patreon link in our show notes. Until next time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.